This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, special guest scholar and musician Yuri Campbell returns to review the key lessons we learned from Nate's discussion with Ted Joy about his book, Music, A Subversive History. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we welcome back Dr. Yuri Campbell, is going to continue our series, What Have We Learned? And we're going to look back at a book I talked with the author of twice, Ted Joya's Music, A Subversive History. Yuri, welcome back. Thanks uh, for having me back, Nate. I'm glad it's, to be here. It's, it's a treat, as always. And this book was a bit of a tome, a broad-ranging, very ambitious piece that some of the points, I guess, are kind of obvious, like music is powerful, but it really hammers things home and was useful to me as a reminder that some of these things that I get upset about, like record labels and consumers screwing with, say, iced tea, or actually consumers screwing with cops and consumers screwing with the record label that was trying to put out iced tea records, and Joya's analysis kind of gives me some comfort in knowing that these kind of kerfuffles and fights always happen. It's not a one-off. It's never circumstantial. Anytime you've got music that's making a difference, that's dynamic, that's innovative, it's going to be stirring up the stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I, definitely, I definitely found the book to be interesting from the standpoint that he, he decides to, uh, to try and, and – and, cover the history of music from a very high level, a very high overview to give us this, you know, sort of sweeping survey of some of the basic dynamics that are involved with music, uh, neurology, you know, uh, human nature, human social organizational patterns, all this sort of thing. And then as he brings down to, uh, uh, 
you know, levels closer to to the surface of the earth, so to speak, you know, levels where we live in an everyday manner, it does help to show that, you know, yes, these things happen over and over again. And take heart, those of you who, uh, uh, you know, are drawn to rebellion or to change or to uh, the, the hopefulness of, of some movement beyond the status quo, the the forces that come into play to try to control the power of music, the creativity of music, innovation, all that, inevitably are unable to do so. And so there is uh, there's a positive message to be taken away, even though there's also uh, there's there's some frightening aspects of it as well in that. You know, there's there's always yeah. going to be this battle. It never ends. And uh, uh, there's also the question of, you know, find, I, I think in your conversation with with Ted, Joya, you, it was mentioned that, that we might be in a lull right now. Yeah. <laughs> when is the lull? For, for those of us who are still, you know, have, have are chasing the dragon of, of the next new thing and, and, and the excitement of, of, of being surprised and, and shocked and, uh, uh, you know, left perplexed by some type of, of musical expression, some type of artistic expression, you know, right now seems to be kind of a lull. So it's like, when is it going to end and what's it going to mean? Are we going to be swept aside? You know, is the next new thing going to come and we're not even going to be able to recognize that it is the next new thing? You know, it's entirely possible um, that, you know, they say uh, that scientists that study potential alien life forms say that things like silicone-based life form might not be something we'd even be able to recognize if it was right in front of us. So yeah, we could be missing a musical revolution that's happening somewhere maybe offline or in a quiet corner of the internet that we haven't heard about yet. The SoundCloud rap explosion of the 2010s, I don't know that was a world-shaking revolution, but it had some energy to it and definitely a lot of death and, and tragedy. So which Joya, you know, identifies sure. as a symptom of vibrant musical scenes. But it, yeah, like you say, there are some positive messages or conclusions that he draws, but some of these are kind of disheartening. Like the Academy or the powers that be are always going to try and succeed that every new genre that explodes out will eventually be mainstreamed and and brought in and normalized and brought into society and, and have all the exciting transgressive yucky parts, you know, will be carefully, meticulously filtered out. And one day you wake up and jazz has gone from funky butt, you know, Buddy Bolden's song that the New Orleans police would literally crack your head open if you sang it in public, to, you know, the Marsalis brothers jazz at Lincoln Center presenting this to the wealthiest uh, people in America as America's classical music. So, you know, this endless battle is never going to end. And, and that's the exciting part. I mean, that, that that we're always in ferment. Life is about change. And music's never going to die as long as humans are alive, although that's an open question in our era as well. <laughs> whether whether music's going to die or humans are going to die. Well, whether humans are going to die. Humanity is going to disappear. 
Yeah, the, I mean, I think music will still be out there in the spheres, um, you know, and, 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 and he argues that, you know, some things that like music is universal, that you can compare music of different tribal units, which is something apparently ethnomusicologists and anthropologists have resisted as a bit of dogma for decades. But neuroscientists and others and people like Ted, generalists are saying, whoa, 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 no, you can draw these conclusions by comparing widely diverse musical cultures, you know, across time and space, that there are certain well, fundamental that, truths that always will out. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought that was one of the most interesting and, and really one of the most important aspects of, of, of the book was that he was willing to treat, uh, you know, certain ideas of universality within, the, you know, under the umbrella of human nature and the needs that humans have, both as individuals and as um, as, as groups. I, I don't think he really attacked it exactly in, in that way, but I think that's what he was more or less talking about. And uh, I, I think that's was was that's what sort of made the book uh, coherent to me is that he was willing to say, look, there are these. These these universal aspects to the human experience and, and music uh, derives from those universal needs and universal drives, and sort of uh, you know therefore accompanies uh, you know life amongst humans. You know at least the way I the, the way I read it it, it, it kind of came off as music is this is this sort of soundtrack that that goes with human endeavor, most of which is in one way or another social, most of which is in one way or another uh, uh, sensory driven. And, and, and one of the most important senses is your sense of here. You know, they're, I suppose they're all equally important or, 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 or difficult to dispense with, let's say. And, and so, you know, within the, the auditory realms, music is naturally going to have um, a great deal of influence, and it's going to be something that can accompany a lot of different human endeavor in different ways, you know, whether you're talking about uh, um, politics or procreation, community building, you know, work, agriculture, religion, spirituality, leisure time, etc. There's always, uh, it seems, some type of music that accompanies those activities. And in each of those realms, there's always, you know, the innovators and the upsetters. There are always uh, sort of the, the guardians of the status quo. And there's always these battles on, you know, when you're going to allow uh, innovation to take root, you know. Absolutely. And, and it's time for our first musical snippet. And this was a tough book to do snippets for. When I talked to Ted, originally, I, I chose, you know, things, anthropological things and the world's oldest written song. And for this version, I decided to riff on his assessment of the current pop genres. And so I sort of did a Google search and tried to 
semi-officially pick the most popular or influential track from each of these four genres from the 2010s. So the first one is, you know, he says pop is the form of music that we use for love and sex these days. This is where romance happens, where dance, you know, where people meet and mix and mingle. And Google tells us that Mark Ronson with Bruno Mars song Uptown Funk was the pop record of the decade for the 2010s. So here it is, Mark Ronson featuring Bruno Mars doing Uptown Funk. And that was Mark Ronson featuring Bruno Mars doing Uptown Funk. This is a stand-in for uh, the pop genre, which Ted says is one of five genres that are currently vying for supremacy in the pop market. Uh, you've got pop covering love and sex, country music, which he links to pastoral music and and the traditional. It's the country sort of the repository of the traditional, the the Backwater is a uh, aspersion-loaded term, but it's kind of that. It's the it's the last place where the music flows out of our society and gets sieved out in country. Rock is standing in for the sort of hero's journey, the Joseph Campbell thing, the the Osiris rise, death and rebirth phenomenon. Rap is where the monophonic chant of ancient tribal elders has been revived in the past few decades and is now you know this huge force in the pop scene. And then the fifth one is electronic dance music, which is our need to dance and also to find these ecstatic trance-like states. And it's one that pop, at least in America, has not successfully entirely digested. So we'll be coming back to those um, as we continue. What did you think of that, his division of our current musical environment into those five categories? Well, I, I you know, when I was trying to to sort of figure out exactly how I felt about his treatment of genre, it, it, it really I kept coming back to the book's sort of lack of of attention to delivery systems and distribution. And and that sort of thing. There was some discussion of algorithms, and there was discussion of trying to, you know, apply science and math and 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 these kind of powerful normative uh, uh, structures and structuralism to to the experience of of listening to music and to the experience of creating music and that sort of thing. But uh, you know, I, when you start talking about genre, you start talking about trying to to distribute music as a commodity as a product and uh i my my sense was is that that was a, a sort of far afield for for the book's intentions and so i came away with this 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 sense that those were convenient and they kind of more or less fit uh, you know, his purposes and the way he used them. But it, I also feel like 
you know, all of those different genres bleed into one another. Yeah. And that, and that just as there's been over genrefication, that, you know, choices is in, in, in presenting choice to people. It's a sort of method of control, right? Like you, you have this idea that when you get to choose something, you are exercising freedom, et cetera, but you're also exercising an effort to control your environment, to, to weed out the things that don't bring you pleasure or, or that are confusing to you, et cetera. And, you know, the, the systems and the methodologies that are being used to forward the process of choice on the, on the part of consumers, to me, that all of that is part of, and, and when you start dealing with genrefication and dealing with, you know, trying to then assign to, you know, overarching uh, uh, genres, these sort of representative powers, it's, to me, it starts to fall apart pretty quickly. I, I, I think that he's correct that music goes, you know, as, I, I, as we were discussing earlier, we mentioned earlier, music accompanies all of these, you know, big tent human endeavors and all the, and, and the small ones as well, you know, the, the subgenres, the, 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 you know, more localized uh, uh, human events. And, and I think that is, that's a very important and, and powerful insight. And that when you look at the uh, sort of accompaniment that music has within the, the topic of innovation versus stasis, that it, 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 makes, it, it makes it easier to start talking about and understanding uh, uh, the nature of, of human need for change, which exists right next door to the need for stasis and order and control. And it, it helps to bring into focus that that's, you know, on some level, that's the, the big never-ending story of, of being a living organism, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and that's where, and, and that's where the, the power of, of, of music kind of comes from. I mean, part of what I'm talking about is, or, 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 or part of my experience with the, with the book was that it, you know, music is powerful. It does have the ability to, to move the heart and to organ, to help bring people onto the same page and to create the power that comes from community activity, et cetera. But at the same time, music, the creation of music, even the distribution of music, isn't the same thing as power. Yeah. And in fact, in fact, it's, it's primarily a part of the human experience that happens away from power or that happens uh, and, is, and is created and innovated and fussed with uh, away from the locus of power. And so it, I think it's important to realize that, yes, you know, especially for people like, you know, yourself and myself who grew up in, the, in sort of the aftermath of the 60s when 
the you know the, the the generation that went through this wash of civil rights and anti-war and free speech and all this kind of stuff you know music was a very important part of of that identification of you know of that generation and so for people like ourselves we've grown up with a belief that I, I think we've grown up with a belief or an expectation or you could even call it a, a sort of waking fever dream, right? That music has the power to move people and to make a difference in the world. And while I think it can accompany those efforts and and help be an organizing and an, uh, an identifier, it is not the same thing as power. It is not the same thing as wielding power. And, you know, it's, it's often a distraction, as opposed to something that helps focus, you know, uh, human efforts to corral and uh, and to use power. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And and it gets into kind of conflating different definitions of power. I mean, you know, somebody who can make a yeah. tune that people remember and never forget, that's a form of power, but it's different than the form of power that lets somebody say, declare somebody else's home illegal and have it bulldozed, um, you know, so. Correct. And, and and the, and the thing with a book that's this ambitious and this broad and this sweeping, even if the insights are fundamentally accurate, you can get into real trouble when you drill down to the specifics. You, you hit that inductive gap and and you get into the specifics and it's it's easy to go wrong. Well, let's hear another one of our tunes. This is the uh, rap champion of the 2010s. This is DJ Khalid's No New Friends featuring Drake. James Harden, money counter go brrr when you sudden at the garden. Four car garage, poor summon, bird man go brrr cause he know that you retarded. On the phone, the flow, before we make it to the bed. Switch up, really call started from the bottom, yes lord. OVO Sam, man, I'm proud of my Knew that we would make it, never doubt of my All my love me if I had a baby mama, she would probably be richer than a lot of you. Hey, that's luxury, dog. Day one, when you stuck with me, dog. Ever since you two big been calling me the leader of the new school. For me, dog, yeah. No new friends, no new friends, no new friends, no, no, no. Still here with my day one, so you hear me say, no new friends, no new friends, no new friends, no new And that was No New Friends featuring Drake on the rap, DJ Khalid uh, as the named artist. And, you know, just listen to this and the Bruno Mars, Mark Ronson song, it's very hard to tell what's pop and what's rap in this context. I mean, the two genres by the 2010s had intermingled and interbled so much, it's really hard to draw a line. They're, they're sold through the same channels, have immensely overlapping audiences maybe if i'd picked adele or you know a female artist um, <laughs> that for to represent pop it would have been easier to draw those distinctions um and i and i do think to some extent rap has taken over the place rock used to have um in the in the pop music ecosystem although we will have um a rock song here in a bit but you know the thing about the book is that you know he he lays these broad principles down and then he goes through history and and for the purposes of the show the end sections are the most relevant to what we've mostly been talking about on let it roll and one chapter he's got like the first chapter i picked out and we don't have to talk about it very much but it, it's the great flip-flop and this is the era when people like child and others uh, and their heirs the lomaxes and others collect folk songs as serious human production like prior to i guess the romantic era late 1700s early 1800s 
nobody cared about folk songs. Like you wrote down, if, if you bothered to write down a song, it was because it was being played for the king and it was powerful and it was important. And this is official government music. And folk songs were just in the air. People were singing them at the marketplace. Prostitutes were singing them in brothels. It was everywhere and yet not documented. So in a way it was nowhere, but this flip-flop happens where there's a shift of standards of excellence. And um, it's, he says that this shift in standards is more important than the actual songs that they collected, that they forged a framework and aesthetic built on songs others had dismissed as crude and vulgar. And I think that's really important that sometimes music commenters these days try to set themselves up as sort of the Homer Simpson uh, knocking down straw men, you know, like Homer Simpson is going to take yeah. on the elders of Springfield with their high toned ways. And there really isn't anybody guarding the castle anymore that, straw man of of the powers that be that want to keep riverside quiet and humble and kill all the dancing and footloose they're not out there nobody's watching the gate yeah i mean you know i i i thought it was interesting that you know towards the end of the book he he, he starts to try and and uh fit some of the more recent uh genres into the flow of his narrative and what you know when he mentions grunge which was probably you know uh, along with rap it's the other like the alternative music craze of the 90s was the last time you know there was a it was one of the last times there was a, a, a big sweeping sort of moment and from my vantage point, the explosion of grunge was an explosion of the gatekeepers suddenly, you know, coming into tune, so to speak, or coming into line with the tastes of a few tastemakers uh, who had previously been, you know, working their way through a low level music industry experiences, you know, playing clubs, et cetera, micro labels, these type of things. And suddenly, you know, the gatekeepers, the big high glass building types, they knew what to do with this music. They knew how to market it. And the music itself had either become uh, sort of sanitized. The people playing the music had kind of left behind the more radical, difficult, problematic approaches and attitudes. Or those those attitudes had become sort of consumable and more acceptable, you know, 15, 20 years after the onset of, of punk rock, et cetera. And I definitely feel that at this point, uh, there is, you know, if you, want to, if you think about music as a technology, and then you put it next to the technology of distribution as a, and, and, and presentation, et cetera. The people, you know, the the groups that are involved with distribution of music and involved with, uh, you know, marketing and all of that sort, of, they have a much stronger grasp of how to market rebellion, of how to market individuality, innovation, uh, iconoclasm, these type of things, and the turnaround on getting a hold of something and turning it into a product that they know how to sell and, and, and how to market and how to describe to the population at large 
as acceptable, even as it's presented as being dangerous and edgy, et cetera. They, it's, it's, you know, they've got it down to a science at this point. So while it, it may look as though they're, you know, they're not guarding the gates, the gates may have just been pushed very, very far out, and we all may be within the gates all the time. All the things that we are used to thinking of as, as being innovative activities, et cetera, may have been swallowed up, and, and it, it may take some kind of um, confluence of technological delivery and uh, the more typical, you know, what we would consider the more typical artistic innovations as well before we, we see something uh, that's truly like shocking, you know, and disruptive in the way that, you know, the blues was in the 20s or, or you know, punk rock was in the 1970s or something like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's, and there are specific music executives who figured out, you know, and I think in the late 90s, like, sort of a just throw stuff at the wall, see if it sells in a particular market. And if it sells in one market, push it in others. And, and that that's the, that the record industry has become so omnivorous that way. And they will literally, anything that shows a sign of life, they will foist it on the, the general public to, you know, and, and maybe Takeshi 69 is the end game of that, a guy who is an admittedly musician of extremely limited talents who understands marketing and social media and is just trolling people uh, for his entire career you know maybe maybe the yeah. maybe that's the end point of it maybe it's just going to keep keep on going but let's go ahead and take our sponsor break and then uh, when we come back we'll discuss the aesthetics of diaspora And so I promised the aesthetics of diaspora, but I also want to pronounce DJ Khaled correctly. Steph's telling me I, I get it wrong. But, you know, I, I didn't know Florida was pronounced Florida either. So, you know, I, I, I opted out of music in the early 90s, and it's been fun to kind of go back and kind of get some Rip Van Winkle you know, experience. You, you mentioned opting out in the early 90s, and, and, you know, there's all this. The book definitely goes into uh, innovation and how important it is uh, for, especially for young people, for there to be new music, you know, and I think there's a lot of well-discussed reasons for that, you know, that when you're young, this is a time when you're sort of uh, developing your identity and developing the identity of the group that you feel that you belong to. And, you know, one, one of the things about music, especially popular music forms, is that, it, like I said, it, it kind of accompanies life. And, you, it, you know, genres come with, with uniforms, ways of dress, hairstyles, slang, all these kinds of things. And so they, it, it's a very good vehicle or it's a very good accompanying force to the, the process of identification. But then as you, as you get a little older, there's a tendency, uh, not unlike a Clockwork Orange's 21st chapter, where you know we've gone through all this, 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 this upheaval in the the life of the character Alex Delarge as he commits all these horrifying acts of violence and transgression, and music is front and center, especially in the film. Music is and, and sound is a big part of the representation of this person's youth. And then it and we think that the story is ultimately about controlling this person, like the the, the powers of of government and and order, trying to control this youthful, 
rascality and, and criminality through chemicals and through treating the body as a machine. And we're, we're a, the natural response to this, I think, is to, is to feel sort of a front or a threat. We don't want the government to control us with chemicals and uh, in, in with, with imagery and sounds that basically turn us into a, you know, a Pavlov puppy, so to speak. But then at the end of the book, the 21st chapter, which at different times has not been included in the book, it turns out that he, that he is a machine and that the cure is not chemical control, which isn't going to necessarily work. He ends up being freed at the end, but freed from the chemical control he's, he, you know, is what happens. But he is a machine and he just outgrows it. Yep. You know, he just grows up and becomes an adult and has a family and kids and a career. And, and he, he, he almost sheepishly asks, at the very end that you you simply sort of remember the little Alex that was and that that kind of dovetails into or it goes along with you know these studies with these this idea that's out there I don't even know if there's a study connected with it but you often hear people say once you get to be about 30 or so you stop seeking or, or most people stop seeking out new kinds of music and new taste experiences and they sort of settle in and I, you know, again, I think that the 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 way that Joya appro approaches neurology and and human nature and and you know uh, functioning on a universal level or a, you know quasi universal level is very important. It's and it's and it's the kind of thing that that we tend, especially in the West where we are so focused on individualism and we're so focused on freedom, you know, some these ideas of, of, of liberty, et cetera, that we are very distrustful of anything that puts in front of us the idea that we are machines, that we are, you know, you know, repositories of chemical reaction and, and electrochemical uh, systems, et cetera. Clockwork oranges. If, if in fact, yeah, we, we are clockwork oranges. And if that is, in fact, the case, and we refuse to look at that, you know, A, we're probably not going to be able to function optimally. We won't be able to fix ourselves, so to speak, as well as we might be able to. And certainly, it's likely that there are, you know, individuals and groups out there that have access to resources and power. Uh, that do think that way, that do look at humans as, you know, electrochemical uh, templates to be uh, controlled and moved around. Absolutely. It's like the Woody Allen uh, love and death scene where he, he's a soldier in the battlefield and he climbs up to the top of the hill where the generals are and, and he sees how they see through the binoculars and it's just sheep down in a field running around. He's like, wow, the battle really does look different from up here. And, you know, I get the feeling that that's very much how Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and the CEO of Spotify and others are seeing this chessboard, you know, is very, they know exactly how each piece moves. Whereas to us, it seems like we've got all this freedom and choice and, Everything else, um, you know, and, and one thing that we talked a little bit about when we were getting ready for this is, you know, he talks a lot, Joya, in this book. He's got this, you know, multiple chapters on 
the way African-American music took over the world in the 20th century. And, and one thing he did I thought was interesting that hadn't occurred to me, but he sets up European cabaret music, the kind of stuff that, you know, Degas and, and uh, Toulouse Lautrec were hearing in those, in those absinthe soaked uh, French cabarets as that could very well have been the music of the 20th century, that that was outsider music. It was very transgressive and dangerous and artsy and creative. And there's a whole tradition that still goes on to this day. You know, Edith Piaf and Jacques Brel and even Serge Gainsbourg uh, could be seen as, you know, kind of a mix of that and, and rock and roll influences and jazz influences. Um, but it very much was displaced by African-American music, which he, you know, we take for granted now. But Nobody in the 1870s would have seen that coming necessarily. And one thing that you pointed out when we were talking about this is that a lot of discussions of that history of African-American music taking over the world talk a lot about the symbiotic cultural relationship between African-Americans and Jewish entrepreneurs, songwriters, and musicians who frequently played outsized roles behind the scenes as songwriters, as producers, as record label owners. And Joy kind of totally leaves that out. Why do you think that was? What What, what is he missing? Or how is it that the, that the role of Jews in the music industry doesn't fit into his analysis? You know, it, uh, I, would, I would like to preface any kind of response with, with, with the announcement that I'm going to try and tread lightly on that because I don't don't really know have a lot of information. I would guess that in in his purview or you know the way he, he interprets the history of Jews in the entertainment industry, Jews in connection with uh, with the dissemination and creation of music as a product, et cetera, that they, that they weren't necessarily uh, innovators or disruptors. That they were, they were, they sort of fell on the side of being in control, and of course that comes with a lot of sort of stereotypical baggage, uh, much of which is sort of ugly and and bigoted and, and and can be interpreted in racist ways. So he may have wanted to just punt on that front because it it, it would probably be very complicated. But I think that it, it, I find it hard to argue that, that Jews weren't innovators, especially innovating. Again, I think it's very important. I mean, on some level, there's a the fact that if you're going to talk about disruptors, iconoclasts, et cetera, you have to talk about the the status quo and the forces of order, et cetera. Otherwise, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And then, and, and then B, I, I do think that the book doesn't do that great a job of talking about the creative aspects of distribution and marketing and all that sort of thing. And, and it's probable that, that Jews had uh, a strong hand in innovating a lot of that or and, and other, you know, if you want to try and, you know, label the people who are involved with creating the music industry with ethnicity and race, et cetera, which is, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. I'm just saying that there might be other ways of thinking about it. But if we are going to use race and ethnicity, et cetera, there, you know, there's people from all different backgrounds that were involved in this, uh, and 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 were upsetters, et cetera. I I think also though that in the United States, which when we say Western music and pop music, et cetera, you know, taking over in the 20th century or even 
from parts in the, uh, of the latter 19th century, that the United States is, you know, Jews are essentially considered white um, in, in, in in many such conversations. Yeah, especially over the last 50 years, that's changed. Especially over, yes. And so I, I think that, you know, if you want to talk about uh, iconoclasm and upsetters and, you know, innovators, and, and you want to approach that, and I think it's reasonable to approach that from the standpoint that a lot of innovation, et cetera, comes from outsiders, comes from people on the margins, then you are, in fact, talking about uh, people of color. And I also think that if you're talking about the West, capitalism, uh, you are talking uh, about you know, demographics and societies that are inextricably and importantly rooted in slavery and in a system a systematized uh, creation of two worlds, one of which is subservient to the other, one of which is necessarily marginalized. And so it's it's natural in some sense, or it can be expected that, you know, those types of innovations are going to come from this second you know, subsumed world. And, and so, you know, it. I think that it's, it's natural that African-American cultural products, especially music, which is, is you know, I think one of the important things about the, the book that we've, we've kind of pointed to in a, in a number of different ways is that, it, you know, it's hard to control music. It's hard to control the social dynamics and energies that, that accrue from creating song and playing song in front of other people. And it's therefore a source of expression and release and communication and organization, et cetera, that, you know, aside from the, the totalizing effort to create two different worlds, one for whiteness that represents kind of freedom and multiplicity and access uh, and then another world for blackness, which, you know, again, to, to sort of use overarching terminology, is for much of the history of the West and for much of the history of the United States, you know, was referenced to outsider status, singularity, you know, uh, blackness is in, in many instances, the effort was to, to make blacks uh, singular in nature, simple. Yeah, to fix them to fix them in a particular position to remove choice from their purview, and so when you create, you know, even though you have a, a great deal of of power and effort to create these two different worlds, it is the nature of music that it's not controllable in that way, and that it seeps through, and. That, you know, in, in some sense, it's as simple as like if you're in the same room as somebody, you can hear them. You hear what they say. Do you believe it? Do you accept it? Do you allow the logic of what they're saying to control change in, you know, other social structures, et cetera? Maybe, maybe not, but you can't unhear it. And Absolutely. so 
Uh, let me jump in right quick because I want to play uh, another song snippet. And this is a switch from what you're talking. It's as off topic as possible. This is our country snippet, which represents the established, the traditional, the safe, uh, and, and the look back. And this is Miranda Lambert, The House That Built Me. Just come in, I swear I'll leave Won't take nothing but a memory From the house that built me Mama cut out pictures of houses for years And that was Miranda Lambert's The House That Built Me, which is our stand-in for country, which Joya uses as... Um, the home of both traditionalism and also pastoral values, which I don't think we'll get into here. But that's one category I think that does work in his uh, his where his schema absolutely works. And it's clear that country is, you know, kind of where musical forms have their last run in American culture. Yeah, I think that the the genre of country music and sort of the the crossing with uh, race and with culture and politics that that he kind of hints at it's it's very I myself was a little uncomfortable with it I thought it was a, a little pat um, and I, I kind of I kind of felt like I wanted to to, to hear a little more on that 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 front certainly most of what conversation occurs revolving around you know country music and 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 pastoral rural agricultural culture points in that direction points in this kind of you know the city is where corruption and grift and uh sort of untrustworthy characters come from and out in the countryside where lifestyles are simpler and, and truer and more authentic, uh, the, that kind of lifestyle isn't understood in in the urban, in the urbane, in the cities, and that you know that's a sort of stereotypical take in it. And, and there's that's something that's accepted, you know, both in the city and in in rural environments. But I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know. I'm a little I'm a little untrusting of 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 his treatment of country music in that way, that, because certainly you know, there, I, I can, he, he, and he does point to the outlaw. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's kind of a tension they have because they have to have outsiders to keep the the blood flowing. But I thought he had two points that that did hold up fairly well, and one of them was that, um, and 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 was something that hadn't necessarily occurred to me before was um, that. Countries, the marketing of country was initially people who chose to not move to cities in the early part of the 20th century, the holdouts, the people who stayed rural. But very quickly, the migration was too big for that to be a, a niche that you could market to. So it became people who wished that they had opted out of urbanization and that, that it takes the lead in this sort of fantasy or aspirational identity and that they were the first, you know, that country marketers were the first people to realize we're not selling people their life story. We're selling them the life story they wished they were having. And I think that that's kind of right. true and something that's that's spilt over. But there's one last point I want to get to where we um, thought we might have disagreed with Joya. And that's when he talks about jazz. And 
Um, he's talking about how jazz, you know, was this very outsider art in New Orleans. I mentioned the Funky Butt song by Buddy Bolden, you know, the, the legendary un, unrecorded, as far as we know, father of jazz and his song Funky Butt, which was so transgressive, you know, you'd get arrested for playing it. But he argues that jazz very early on had this trait that no other folk art had. And that was that it could absorb other perform the ability to devour and digest other performance styles. And I, I see that as true. It took syncopation from ragtime. It took blue notes and chord structures from the blues. It took um, the instrumentation of Marshall, you know, John Philip Sousa style brass band music and combined them all and then sold it to the world in this explosion of joy and fun. And it's, and he also points out, you know, this music has become so layered with respectability. We forget that people like Louis Armstrong and even Duke Ellington popularized it based on this is fun. This is danceable. This is exciting. This is funny. People, you know, charismatic stars like Louis and Duke Ellington. And it's only later that it becomes this self-consciously arty, off-putting music in the bebop era. And, you know, my immediate question, though, is, well, rock had this, that was rock's big superpower in the 60s, this ability to absorb, you know, folk rock, country rock, jazz rock. It wasn't rock jazz. It was jazz rock. And and then hip hop started doing that in the 90s. But maybe jazz was the first. And it sort of gave that power up when it became an art music in the 40s. And rock took that mantle and then hip hop took that mantle because, you know, there was a period in the 90s, 2000s when it looked like new metal and white rappers like the Beastie Boys and Eminem might actually seize the mantle of hip hop. And, and you know, before people like Jay-Z and Diddy emerged as these commercial titans who are not only Elvis level pop stars, you know, maybe nobody's as big as Elvis was in that era just because it was not a broadcast era, but the biggest pop stars we had and the biggest moguls. But there for a minute, it looked like Fred Durst and Eminem might, you know, seize this and, and, and that rock might win. So what, what do you think on that? Like, was this, is he just talking out of his ass when he says jazz is the only folk art without power? Or is that a power that then passed on to other mediums? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if he overstated that or he, he, he just wasn't careful with his words. I, I think that, you know, if, if you look at rock and roll and, and hip hop and other dominant uh, musical forms, probably you could say this about country music, what have you, there's always a sort of assimilative process that goes on. It seems like there's always uh, um, borrowing and, and, and recasting of the boundaries, you know, the outer limits of, 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 of forms of the genres and that that's i find it hard to, to believe that he, he he's deeply indebted to that characterization of, of jazz as opposed to just the characterization of, of music as an endeavor amongst humans um but i i, I think you're 100 percent correct that rock and roll's sort of elasticity and plasticity is formidable Every bit as formidable as jazz's was, and, and possibly even more so, you know, because jazz ended up trying to crush everything into um, what I would consider a narrower uh, pathway forward, whereas rock and roll just kind of spilled out in every different direction and, uh, uh, and consumed everything in its path for a good 50 years. Yeah, but maybe that's why rock and roll kind of became 
nothing. It stood for everything so much to the point that it, it didn't stand for anything other than, you know, white dudes with loud guitars. And, and, um, but let's hear our last song snippet. And, and this is, um, the Deftones Diamond Eyes, which is, a, you know, somebody, I think it was Loudwire, said this is the best, most representative rock track of the 2010s. This is the Deftones Diamond Eyes. That was the Deftones Diamond Eyes and definitely the runt of the litter of these four songs, I would say. Like when I went and Rolling Stone was the first thing that Google brought up, you know, here's our list of 100 best rock songs from the 2010s. And literally there were like 10 rock songs scattered in through that whole list of 100 songs. Like pop and hip hop and EDM had so taken over in the 2010s that rock was just this absolute commercial backwater. And if you listen to that Deftones track... And I didn't. It's not like I spent hours listening to it, but you know, but I am familiar with the Deftones, and I think they're one of the better groups of the era. But that shit sounds old. I mean, it sounds like grunge. There's there's tropes from the '90s and '80s and in there, and and um, I mean, rock just definitely, absolutely seems dead on its feet. Although Olivia What's Her Face, um, that's the new flavor of the moment, has uh, Olivia Rodrigo, I think maybe has a, a rock flavored song, but I don't know. I think he's stretching it the most with this idea that rock as this sacrificial, you know, reliving the Osiris rites or the Hercules or the Jesus myth. I think that's a big stretch. And I think rock is just not really relevant in this era. I, I, I definitely think at this point, rock is limping along as a flag bearer for change and innovation and, it, it and it's it's lost a lot of its power to organize uh, the hearts and minds of people in the direction of change, et cetera. Um, I, I I do want to you know I want to I want before we we close out here I would like to make a couple of points or bring up a couple of things and one of one of them is the term rock. This is just a personal thing. Uh, a, a sort of personal note from my own life, but you know, we uh, amongst a number of my friends, I used to refer to something that uh, was that that was imbued with the energy of change and the energy of originality and and courage. You know, the courage that goes with putting something in front of people that's different and challenging. I would refer to that as the rock, right? And I yeah. always tried to 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 say that it wasn't just well, I'm not just talking about rock and roll. It's not just ACDC or Led Zeppelin that has the rock. It's not just, you know, Little Richard or Jerry Lee Lewis that has the rock. But Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk had the rock. And, you know, Martin Scorsese had the rock. And, you know, Picasso had the rock. And Jean-Michel Basquiat had the rock. And Caravaggio had the rock. I got Caravaggio had the rock, right? And I I think that, you know, Joya's book, while focusing on music, is talking about that creative kind of urge in humanity. And I think that the na- it is the nature of, of life that we're always in flux, but we're always at the same time 
trying to impose order on it so that we can have a measure of, of sort of comfort. But stasis doesn't bring comfort. It's this very strange, it's neither one nor the other, but both at the same time in, in some sort of balance, you know, change and stasis. And it matters who's in control of the change. It matters whether the individual is, the, the group to which the individual belongs, or some outside force, some overarching force, or a source that's considered uh, to be outside. And, you know, the creative urge abuts and accompanies, you know, this, these efforts at stasis. And I think that the reason that, you know, innovation always draws attention is because there is, is there, there's a lack of ability to simply stay still. You can't just stay still. You can't just stay in the same place. You will eventually become somebody who wants to stay in the same place. Your group will eventually either desire change because they're not in the place that they wish to be, or once they sort of arrive, you know, they will want things to stay, right? You have within genre, you have the rise to respectability, et cetera. But once the, you get that respectability, there's this sort of purification. You know, there's a purity that, that starts to come into play. And, and you, you have people that are within the group who are part of innovation, who are part of transgression, who are part of iconoclasm, who don't want it to change, you know, who don't want yeah, to see yeah. it replaced or improved upon or made different. And it's just it's such it's such a, a basic aspect to human life, and, it, and it's often invisible to people, you know. And I think that, that it's always important to remind people of that. And I think the book points at that. Yeah, definitely. And there's so much to cover, and that we obviously didn't get to everything. But the, the book has this not a manifesto chapter at the end with I think 40 some odd points that most of which I think are pretty accurate and and can be stretched and expanded. So we could probably spend a whole season talking about this book. So um, if if I've had Ted on twice to talk it through, so if you're if you're game. Um, I'd like to have you back on and, and we can talk through that manifesto a little bit. But this is uh, go go ahead. I was just I was just saying I would I would love to come back and, and talk about some other aspects of the book. That would be great. And uh, you know I think it it's also a book that goes well with questions about secret information, the cool, and that aspect of the power of innovation and iconoclasm. So we might basically just say we might discuss it in, in connection with another another book as well. Yeah, yeah, we've got his um, The Birth and Death of the Cool by Ted Joya that, that I've, I've thrown at you and, and want to discuss. So we might do that one next and come back to the manifesto. So for Dr. Yuri Campbell, I'm Nate Wilcox, and we've been discussing Ted Joya's music as subversive history. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate returns with James Kaplan to discuss The Chairman, the final installment of his biography series on Frank Sinatra. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. <laughs>